Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Nonsensical Knowledge Podcast. On this episode, I sit down with Scott Walter. Scott is a forensic geologist, explorer, and the host of the History Channel's America on Earth. Scott has done decades of work regarding the Kensington Runestone, the Hooked X, and the Knights Templar. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Nonsensical Knowledge Podcast. Make sure you click that like button. Make sure you click the subscribe button. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Nonsensical Knowledge Podcast. On this episode, we have the author, forensic geologist, and host of the History Channel series, America on Earth, Scott Walter. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. For everyone listening, as I said, Scott is a forensic geologist, explorer, and the host of the History Channel's America on Earth. Scott has done decades of work regarding the Kensington Runestone, the Hooked X, the Knights Templar, and many, many other areas of geology, archaeology, and history in general. Scott is also the founder and president of the American Petrographic Services and the inventor of the Archaeopetrography, a process used to date and understand the origins of inscribed stone artifacts. Scott, thank you so much for being here. Let's start right at the beginning. How did you get into geology? How did I get into geology? Well, that goes back to uh, probably when I was graduating from high school, going into college, I took a trip out west to Montana with my brother and another friend to go hiking in the mountains outside of uh, Bridger Bowl and, and near Bozeman, Montana. And uh, at one point we got separated and uh, I got ahead of the guys and I got to the top of this peak and uh, they had a little metal pipe there that you could unscrew and pull out a piece of paper and write your name on it, the date, thanks. And so I did that, and it was just a beautiful late afternoon. The sun was setting, and I was looking off to the west. And I picked up a rock that was right next to this metal cylinder. And I looked at it, and I saw a shell in the rock. It was a fossil. And it was a little, you know, little bivalve clamshell. And I thought to myself, how the heck could something that was at one time at the bottom of the ocean get up here to the top of this mountain? And that, that stuck with me. And then when I was in college, um, I took an intro to geology class, and um, it went really well. And, and that was the, the first time I got an A in college, and that really uh, launched me into to geology from there. Well, it certainly sounds like you've been quite a few places since you got into geology, huh, Scott? Oh, yeah, I have. Uh, and even before I got involved in television, um, I did a lot of traveling. <clears throat> I worked as a field geologist, and I've, I've, uh, I've been all over, and, and I've seen, <laughs> I've been in all 50 states. I've seen <clears throat> all kinds of rocks and, and all kinds of artifacts, and uh, and it just continues. I mean, I'm going to keep going till I drop. <laughs> wow, that sounds like quite the journey, Scott. Now, tell me a little bit about the Lake Superior agate. I know you were a collector, correct? Yeah, mm-hmm. the the, um, the Lake Superior agate is the state gemstone in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And I got into picking agate, well, when I was in college. And and then afterwards, it, it, the bug bit me really hard. And uh, I would go picking literally every I really enjoyed it, and it also gave me an opportunity to supplement my income a little bit because I could find agates, and the ones I didn't want to keep, I could sell. So 
you know, I really got into it. And uh, eventually, in 1986, I wrote my first book called The Lake Superior Dragon. And that's what got me started really in, in, into writing and um, publishing books. So um, it was, uh, it's been quite a journey, but it was, it's definitely uh, the Minnesota State Gemstone of the Lake Superior Ragged. Uh, I, I'm still a huge collector. In fact, two days ago, I got a beauty three-pounder that I'm really excited about. I'm looking at it right now. So I never stop. That sounds so cool, Scott. Now tell me about the agate. What makes the agate special? You know, people look up agates. You'll see that agates are found all around the world. Um, they um, <clears throat> they come in all sizes, shapes, and colors, and varieties. And uh, as I said, I've written a whole book about this, but um, in Minnesota, we have a real unique type that form inside the North Shore Volcanic Series, uh, which dates back over a billion years ago. Oh, wow. Not a million, not a hundred million, but a billion years ago. And the agates form uh, as banded secondary silica inside of volcanic uh, gas pockets that get <clears throat> trapped in the lava as it cools and hardens, and then, you know, secondary solutions come along, fill up the agates uh, either layer by layer, or they separate out into bands um, by another process. Uh, we don't know for sure how exactly how they form. That's one of the mysteries and wonders of agates. There isn't a 100% consensus on um, on how they form. But then later on, they, they weathered out, and then the glaciers starting about two million years ago that sent, you know, loads of ice uh, from Canada down south into Minnesota, into Minnesota and other states, plucked those agates out and tumbled them. And so they're naturally exposed in Minnesota with these beautiful uh, banding patterns that get exposed by the glacial transport and the rich iron that was transported into them when they formed then oxidizes uh, to form these beautiful secondary colors. There's no other agate in the world like um, like our agate here. It's, it's so it's entirely one of a kind for sure. So this particular agate is unique to Minnesota. Absolutely. Wow, that's pretty interesting stuff, Scott. Just looking at the ones here online, they look pretty friggin' cool. So now, would they be fairly common, or are they kind of rare? Actually, you know, their agates are relatively common um, if you're looking in, in the glacial glacial fills and lakeshores and rivers here around Minnesota. But, um, you know, they're usually small and not very pretty. But the ones that you're seeing, those are the rare gems, um, you know, that are, that are highly prized and coveted by us collectors. And they're damn hard to find. So... When you get a really good one with strong banding, beautiful colors, and, you know, um, and they're big, you know, anything this size or larger is truly rare. And they're worth some money, too, man, let me tell you. I can imagine, Scott, especially if you find some really good ones. There's a lot of collectors out there. So now with this agate, the process happens specifically here in Minnesota with the glaciers and stuff like that, and that's why this particular one forms here. I mean, first of all, you know, for agates can 
also form in other types of rock. They don't, it isn't just volcanic, but the nodular style that we have here, um, they have to form in volcanic rock. But what makes them unique to Minnesota is the glacial history. The fact that, you know, they've been plucked out and transported by the glaciers, which actually acted like a huge rock tumbler and, you know, opened the, uh, the banding, uh, naturally, in some cases, so carefully and beautifully, it's, it, it, it's amazing. You, you, know, you can't believe nature would handle them so, so, so wonderfully. Yeah. And then, of course, the secondary colors caused by the heavy iron content just creates the beautiful reds and whites and other colors, too. So they're, they're unique. You've got agates found on every continent in the world. Uh, there are many, many different sites, but there's nothing that has They definitely seem super special, Scott. And um, uh, when I was doing research for this episode, I, I had noticed that you were an avid collector of agates and had to bring it up because I just it was super interesting, especially with one that is, in particular, special to Lake Superior. During a long time, I've written three or four books on Lake Superior agates. And, you know, more than anything, one of the things that I discovered about writing in general, but especially with the agates, is, you know, people love to hear about the different varieties, the different types, um, how they formed, and, you know, all that stuff. But far and away, the thing that, that resonated with people in the first book that I wrote, and I, I were the stories about finding agates or collector stories or going to visit, you know, old-timers with huge collections. Now I'm getting to be one of those old-timers that has the collection, but I just remember people would write me letters, and they didn't talk about the different types of the varieties or any of that technical stuff. They wanted to hear the stories about, you know, the people that found the agates or, you know, the one that was, um, you know, found when, uh, you know, a guy was, was clearing out his field and this giant rock was sitting there and he didn't know what it was. And, you know, there's all kinds of great stories. And it's it, it's the human interest uh, that connects with people, and every agate has a story. And one of the things that I think is really, really important, and I've been doing this for a long time because I think it's important, but these rare, beautiful gems only get found once, right? Absolutely. Just one time. And the agate is going to live forever. It's going to be here long after you and I are in the ground and dust, right? Right. Because they, they don't weather. So that story of when it was found is very important and it must be documented at the time it happens. Otherwise, people grow old and die and the stories are lost. And every time I show people a big agate, they look at it and go, wow, that's beautiful. Where was it found? Who found it? What was the story? So I've made an effort to make sure that I record as much information every time because you know what? Once they go, the story is lost. Right, and I think proper documentation is a is a big deal because you know when's the last time anybody had seen this rock, if ever, after being buried in the earth for so long? If you stop and think about these rocks, I'll hold them and I'll look at them, and they're so beautiful. But then I think about how long they've been around. I mean, it's just incredible. It's it's humbling, but um, I don't know. It's just one of the things that it's what I call the magic behind the stone. 
Definitely, and it's such an interesting topic, and it's definitely going right up our alley into where we're going with the Kensington Rune Stone. What are some of the processes that they that geologists use to date these stones? Well, I mean, you have you know carbon fourteen uh, dating works when you will find, say, a lithic artifact, an arrowhead, or a hammerstone, or an axe at a site. You can date the well, you can date the artifact that way. But as far as dating actual rocks, um, we use a number of different dating methods. There's potassium, argon, strontium, rubidium um, testing. Um, basically, what you're doing is you're measuring the half-life of certain radioactive minerals and uh, different uh, elements have different half-lives, and some of you know go back hundreds of millions of years. So. These are elemental clocks that occur inside of rocks that that can uh, that that's how we date them. So there's a quite a few ways to determine the age of these stone objects. Now, turning to the Kensington runestone, what piqued your interest into the Kensington runestone? How did you get involved? Oh my gosh, we got to go back 20 years to when I actually had dark hair. I blame it on the runestone, but um, no, I was uh, I was you know running my Materials Forensic Laboratory, American Petrographic Services, sister company with American Engineering and Testing in St. Paul, Minnesota, and, you know, doing my material forensics, working primarily in the construction industry, um, looking at primarily concrete, but, you know, concrete is essentially a man-made rock, and it has sand and coarse aggregate in it, and in the Portland cement itself is a fired limestone, so really everything about concrete is rock. So when I was asked to look at the Kensington runestone in 2000, you know, it, it really wasn't a problem for us because we look at rocks every day. But this was, you know, this was a, a different problem, a different question that had to do with trying to date the age of the inscription. So it wasn't about dating the age of the rock, which of course we know is, you know, millions of years old, but um, it was the man-made inscription. And of course, you know, I had never really done much uh, in that regard, if anything, at that point. And so I told, I remember telling the museum, I said, well, I have some ideas of things we can do, but I make no guarantees of anything. I mean, I'll do my best, but, um, you know, I can't guarantee that I'll get you a, a result either way. And they said, okay, well, we'll well, go ahead. We want to do this testing. So, so I went ahead and, and I, I did the, you know, the testing and, and I came up with this idea of comparing the weathering of the runestone with the weathering of tombstones comprised of the same minerals, same rock type, same weathering environment, same, uh, same everything, really. I mean, the runestone was found, um, <clears throat> under the roots of a tree. Part of it was at the surface. The deepest part was about a foot in the ground, and tombstones, basically, same exposure conditions. So I thought it worked out really good as a, um, to use for a, uh, a weathering comparison. And when it was all done, it worked out fantastic. And <clears throat> I was able to say with 100% with certainty in my mind that the weathering of the inscription is older than 200 years, and that's from the date in the, you know, the date it was pulled out of the ground because it hasn't been in a weathering environment since that time. 
Right. So you go back 200 years at least from the date it was found, that makes a late 19th century hoax impossible. Right. I mean, nobody, nobody's lived 200 years, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Ola Foreman certainly didn't, the guy who found it. So the only logical conclusion is it had to be genuine. And uh, I wrote that in my report, and I thought these guys would be happy with the results. I didn't realize that there was a controversy. I didn't know anything about that. And uh, when I released the results and I got all this pushback, I was surprised. And then I remember I was, you know, I asked people, I said, okay, well, what, what don't you get? Ask me questions, and I'll, you know, if I made a mistake, I'll fix it. Well... It had nothing to do with the mistake that I made. They just didn't like the result. It challenged the so-called narrative that existed at that time, which I knew nothing about. You know, Columbus discovered America, and anything else that comes in conflict with that be damned. And um, I had a real problem with that, you know. And again, they didn't, they didn't question anything that I had done. I didn't do anything wrong. Not to interrupt you, Scott, but isn't this what peer-reviewed journalism is for like i mean isn't peers supposed to review this information and and make a collective decision well you would think so right i mean if and and as i said if somebody had a problem point it out i'm a human being i make mistakes and if i've made a mistake enlighten me well that wasn't the situation and that was really um that was really uh, a difficult moment for me because I didn't understand what they didn't understand. Well, as I said, the problem wasn't me. It was I was challenging the narrative. And it took me a while to get my head around that, and uh, now I understand it perfectly. Things like the runestone and these other out-of-place artifacts that we've looked at um, are a big problem for the people that don't want the truth to come out. Because once you accept something like the runestone being genuine, what it does is it triggers a series of dominoes to begin falling. And those dominoes go to inconvenient places. Um, So essentially you're challenging a narrative that has been longly established for most of our written history. For example. You're right. And one of those people that, doesn't want the narrative challenged is the Roman Catholic Church. And, you know, the, 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 you follow the, you start pulling the string on the runestone and that sweater starts to come apart pretty fast and it starts to reveal things that they don't want people to know. And, uh, problem was, I, I totally get it now. It also takes away the trust that you'd have in such an institution like the Roman Catholic Church. Well, the church, it undermines, you know, the, um, you know, the, um, the dogma that, that they're preaching to people that frankly is not true. I mean, it, I know there's, there's probably people in the audience that would be upset by that, but. I don't think so, Scott. On this podcast, we, we try to question everything that is, uh, outside of the mainstream narrative. Damn something. I'm not here to try to upset people. I'm not here to try to piss anyone off. I'm here to try to get to the truth. And, you know, um, I, you know, I've known for a long time that a certain narrative was, was not true, but the depths at which people will go to protect, you know, what they believe, uh, they need to protect is astonishing. And I, 
sometimes I, I have to I, I have to remind myself, oh, that's right, forgot. Not everybody understands what's real and what's not. You know, it's um, it's how, frustrating. And I was just going to ask, how do you how do you handle the criticism? Obviously, you just keep plugging, right? You like you have to. Well, of course, you know, you keep plugging, but. I mean, honestly, I don't get upset about things that have no merit. I mean, if I do something that's worthy of criticism, then I'll feel bad about it. But, um, you know, I, 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 I've done good work. Uh, my work has been peer-reviewed. Um, it's been accepted. And, you know, if people are going to attack me just because they don't like the work that I've done, I, 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 that's not my problem. That's their problem. Right, and that isn't your problem. Now, with the work that you've done, I mean, being peer-reviewed and everything else, you know, people should be open here in 2020, which has been the weirdest year of all, to be open to these ideas that not everything around us is exactly what they tell us it is. For damn sure. (laughs) And and it goes uh, much further than that. I mean, the root zone really, um, you know, God, that was 20 years ago, it was but it was the most profound moment in my career was working on that stone. And I take great pride in the work that we've done and not, not only proving that it's authentic, but you also have to ask the next questions after that. If this thing is authentic, which it is, that means somebody came here. They came from some place for some reason. And those are absolute truth that if this artifact is real and it is, those you know, the answers to those questions have to be out there as well. And that's what I've spent the last 20 years working on. And I think I have the answer to all of it. It's an amazing story that really eventually, um, what it all boils down to is it's a story of the founding of our country, of the United States of America. And it's a fact that all of our founding fathers were Freemasons. They were also Knights Templars. That's no coincidence. And they inherited an obligation from their medieval Templar brethren who were coming over here for centuries, laying the groundwork for what would become the United States. And the tenets upon which this nation were founded tells you all you need to know about that mission. You know, I mean, we have separation of church and state for a reason, right? Oh, yeah. And in this country, we are not a Christian country. You can be any religion you want. We happen to have mostly Christians here, but that doesn't mean we're a Christian country because we're not. And there are very specific reasons for why we have this this critical separation of church and state. We also are not a monarchy, even though over the past four years you might wonder about that. But we fought a revolution. It was called the Revolutionary War against a monarchy. <laughs> Of, of, of the King of England, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I sometimes think that people forget um, Tushin that you hear so much about is actually a Masonic document. And if people took the time to read it, um, they might, you know, they might regain some of that pride that, um, I think we've lost a little bit since the days of our founding fathers. Minded, and and people should take a step back and and really try to understand what that document means and and what the reasons were that our country was founded. And it'll get you, it'll take you back to the 1700s, 
to the Templars, and that Templar land claim they placed in, you know, Greater Minnesota in 1362, we now call the Kensington Roosevelt. That was the initial stake in the ground that started this whole effort. People are celebrating the 4th of July and the founding of our country. It didn't start in 1776. It didn't start in 1492 either, 62. Well, you know, frankly, um, you know, one of the things that, that I, and this is my problem, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but, I mean, when I see people flying their flag on their cars and honking their horns and, and claiming to be patriots, but yet, um, you know, disparaging people that look different than them or think differently than them. It makes me sad. It makes me really sad. And, you know, and, and make me look differently upon the flag. And most of the people flying that flag have, haven't a clue what the symbolism on the flag means. Let me ask you a question, okay? And be honest. Because I do this all the time when I give lectures. I ask this question. Okay. And that question is, do you know the origin of the five-pointed star? The symbol that is on our flag 50 times, that I think anybody would probably agree is, is the most iconic symbol of America. Nobody knows what the hell it means and what its origin is. I find that to be incredible, don't you? I do find that incredible, Scott, because just my mind immediately brings me to the pentagram. Well, and don't you find it interesting that the Roman Catholic Church took the five-pointed star and tipped it upside down with the point down and said it was a symbol of the devil? Hell is a human creation, right? Oh, yeah. Hell is a human creation. And, and, and you know, it's, it's mystifying to me because they know the origin of the symbol, and it has nothing to do with anything negative. It's 100% positive. And if you want to know, I'll tell you. If you track the movement of the third brightest heavenly body in the sky, do you know what that is? I do not, Scott. What is it? you got the sun, right? Yep. you got the moon. The third brightest heavenly body is the planet Venus. Venus, when it is viewed astronomically from Earth over eight Earth years, it will create the five-pointed star. No way, really? Yep. Oh, Look wow. it up. But there's more to it than that. So if you take the five-pointed star and you just draw one, just draw one on a piece of paper, okay? Now, you'll see a symbol in the middle. What is that symbol? Pentagon. Pentagon, a five-sided shape, right? So if you take any one of those five sides, if you take the length, of that line inside the star. And if you assign it a value of one, the distance of the length of the line that makes the arm, that goes out and extends to the arm, if you continue that line, the ratio of the inner line to the outer line on the arm, of all, all five of those arms, is one to 1.68 something, something, something. That ratio is called the golden ratio, ratio or the Fibonacci sequence. No Are you kidding. familiar with that? That's, I, didn't know, okay. I didn't know that, but that is amazing. Yes, that is 100% true. 
And of course, the Fibonacci sequence is also known as the golden ratio, and it's the secret to life in the universe. Because that's the rate of growth that a shell grows, that's symbolized by a spiral. It's how a leaf grows. It's how our bodies grow. Bones in our body, uh, the ratio of our, of our, of our body. And the spiral is the emblematic symbol of the golden ratio. And you see it in a spiral in a, in a galaxy in the, in the heavens. You see it as, as a hurricane. You see it as the water goes down the drain when you're shaving, right, or brushing your teeth. It's in all aspects of the universe. So it's pretty consistent all the way around. So it, because it's a symbol of life, it's associated with the feminine because the feminine brings light. And that is why the five-pointed star is associated. It's called the physical manifestation of the goddess in the heavens. It's the sacred feminine, astronomically. So now you probably are getting an idea of why the church demonized the symbol by putting the point down and saying it was a sign of the devil. They did not want the sacred feminine to be elevated. And so the true practices, practitioners of the ancient faith of monotheistic dualism, which is symbolized by the hooked act, and it's all over the runestone 22 times, it tells you about the essence of their belief system. It also explains to you why the church arrested, tortured, and burned the Templars. Because the Templars simply pretended to be Catholic. They were not Catholic at all. They venerated the sacred goddess. They venerated the planet Venus. And that's why they always looked to the West and followed Venus when she's an evening star because that's how they got over to America. Yeah, which is sanctuary. Yeah, which where I, they knew that they could practice their ancient faith free from the tyranny of the monarchs of Europe and the persecution from the Roman Church. And so, what other symbol could they possibly have chosen to represent that, you know, that shiny <laughs> castle yeah. on, on the hill, right? This is all kind of making sense, isn't it? I mean, the Roman Church stole all these symbols or borrowed these symbols from these ancient traditions that, um, in most cases, the ideology is diametrically opposed to each other. One embraces the feminine, the other deified the feminine, and that's not a debate, that's a fact. You know, once you understand the signs, symbols, and tokens, you can really start to understand what happened. And it's time for this stuff to be revealed. I mean, I find it, like I said before, I find it astonishing that nobody understands the origin of the five-pointed star, yet it's all around us, and uh, it's on our flag 50 times, but yet we're ignorant of its, of its origin. Yeah, and it's kind of crazy because it's so so deeply entrenched in our society and all all the way around us that, you know, you would think more people would be interested in finding out something other than what the narrative is. Well, you know what? I mean, let's face it. Enlightenment is not for everybody. Nor, nor, nor was it intended to be for everybody. I mean, it should be for everybody, but it's just not. And, uh, you know, and that's okay. I mean, I don't criticize people if they don't have an interest. 
Um, but to me, I think it's, it's profoundly interesting and important. And it goes to some of the central, uh, tenets of, uh, of our nation, of our history, and really of who, who we are. And so, uh, but you know, like I said, it's not for everybody. Some people, they just, they're not interested. Yeah. And, you know, that's okay. I mean, it's bad, but you know, you can't force somebody to take an interest in something that's either there or it's not. Right, and I think it's a part of everyone's own personal journey and personal evolution to come into enlightenment at some point in their lives. Um, the Catholic Church has played such a integral role into the indoctrination of the entire world. But getting back into the Kensington Runestone, uh, where, what, at what point did this this stone point you in the direction of the Knights Templar? Well, it, it, you know, I have to say the evidence trail that I followed that took me to the Templars was, was about the easiest evidence trail I've ever followed, and it went straight to them and nobody but them. And it started with the language, the runes, the dialect, and the grammar. I didn't really get into the symbolism, the allegory, and code until later, um, until after I realized that the Templars were involved. But you know, I I went to Sweden five times investigating all aspects of the runestone, and the, the the you know the rare features that they said didn't you know never existed. Those were never used back in those those days. I knew that was BS because look, the geology told me it was real. It was all therefore it had to be genuine. And the one thing I love about rocks is it never lied to me. Rocks don't care. Rocks don't have egos. They just are. And so um, I knew that based on that, if the runestone was real, that all the stuff that they said didn't exist had to exist because it's real. So I got my butt over there, and I went looking for them, and I found everything. And, of course, all that did was just piss them off even more, but, you know, that's their problem again, not mine. When over there, I uh, most of the stuff that where I found these rare features in the runes, the dialect, the grammar, and the dating, was on this island in the middle of the Baltic Sea, which was um, uh, an island called Gotland. And the other thing that nobody could disagree with is in medieval times, the only person who would have been educated enough to be able to carve an inscription of that complexity and length had to have been a member of the clergy, right? Because the common people weren't educated. And the only clergy that you have on God, the only, the only one, were the Cistercians, the white monks. There are 99 Cistercian churches on that island. And of course, so who are the Cistercians? So I dug into them, and I quickly realized that St. Bernard de Clairvaux was the charismatic leader of the uh, of the Cistercians, who founded uh, First Daughter Abbey at Clairvaux, hence Bernard de Clairvaux. But in January 13 of 1129, he was the one who wrote a papal bull that made the Knights Templar Order an official military monastic order that Pope signed off on. He signed a papal bull making them official. Now, they, of course, started before that, but that's when they became official. The, the, the Templars are Cistercians. 
they just serve a different function within the order they carry the swords, right? So that's how I got to the to the temples. And they were the ones that had, you know, a shipping empire. They were making money hand over fist um, to agricultural uh, agriculture and animal husbandry at the Cistercian monasteries. And so the money was being handled by by the templates. And it was basically a monopoly. It was incredible. And they became immensely wealthy. Templars was easy. It was understanding the symbolism, the allegory, the code within the runestone that really um, is where it all became interesting because the esoteric aspects of uh, of the Templars is where it really starts to be fun. Oh, I'm sure it was really fun, Scott. So what exactly pointed to the Templars? Was it the hooked X? Well, so the hooked X, you know, eventually pointed to them, but... Um, you know some of the some of the symbolism and the allegories and the codes. I'll give you I'll give you an example. So the runestone inscription says eight Goths and twenty two Northmen on this acquisition business um, from Vinland far to the west. We had a camp near two shelters one day's journey north from the stone. Um, we had a uh, we had a camp near two yeah, shelters one day's journey north from the stone. We were fishing one day. After we came home, found ten men red from blood and death. Um, ADM, Ave Virgo Maria, saved from evil. And then on the split side, it says there are ten men by the inland sea to look after our ship. Fourteen days journey from this island, year 1362. Now, one of the things that um, struck me was there are eight numbers within the inscription. And the first number is the number eight. Now, if you recall the five-pointed star discussion we had, how many Earth years does it take to create the five-pointed star? Remember that? Eight years. It takes eight years. That's why the number eight is so sacred to the temple. And that I that I learned from research. But on the runestone, you've got eight numbers. The first number is very first thing in the inscription is the number eight. That's where it gets interesting. So in Freemasonry, which is connected to other Templarism and Freemasonry are very close. So eight gods and twenty-two Northmen. Eight and twenty-two. Eight plus twenty-two is what? Thirty, right? That's two shelters. Thirty-two, right? Days journey north from this island. Those numbers in sequence give you the Scottish Rite degree system. Is that a coincidence? It definitely doesn't sound like a coincidence, Scott. <laughs> so you've also got the numbers 10, 10, 14, and 1. You've got 8, 22, 2, 1, 1, 10, 10, and 14 within the inscription. I find it interesting that there are eight G runes. The G rune is the, the way it's made on the runestone is backwards. It's not made right. This was one of the complaints they had. It's supposed to have a loop going to the right. It goes to the left. There are eight of those. Eight gods. There are ten W runes which also serve as the B room. 
which has never been seen in a runic inscription before. Ten of them. There are 14 individual numbers within the inscription. Pentatic numbers are, are virtually unheard of in runic inscriptions. I can't think of another one that I've ever seen, and I've looked at thousands of runic inscriptions, person or in book. Now, this is purely unique to the Kensington runestone. And guess how many hooked X's are on the runestone? How many hooked X's are on there, Scott? 22. So the numbers on the Kensington runestone are confirmed within the inscription. It's called the confirmation code. You've never heard that before, have you? I've never heard that, Scott. So it's a confirmation code embedded into the Kensington runestone? Because nobody ever looked at the runestone from that standpoint. Well, again, these so-called scholars who had taken looks at this uh, this stone were obviously biased. Biased because they could not understand what this thing was, and because they couldn't understand it, they were afraid to admit it. So what's the simplest thing to do? The easiest thing to do is dismiss it. Go away. Because they're arrogant. They just didn't have... They just didn't have the integrity to admit. Hey, we need to do more research. We need to get some help. Um, heaven forbid they need any help, right? Well, not only that, they needed help going against a long-established system. Well, it's it's really all very disappointing, but it's all perfectly understandable um, how this all came about. The other thing that's interesting is there are many modifications that were added to a number of the runes and numbers on the runestone that I'm the first person to see because I did a microscopic photo library and I took pictures of every character with high and low angle reflected light to bring out the three-dimensionality of the inscription. And I found a bunch of these marks and short strokes and punch marks. Well, we have now figured out what those punch marks are. Is a dating code, medieval Easter table dating practice in Europe back in the 14th century. Basically, when you plot three of these isolated symbols on the Easter table, you get a date. Which date you get? 1362. The confirmation code, and it was embedded within the inscription to protect it from alteration. The date that everybody can see. So it's double dated. Absolutely brilliant. Protected from alteration. And why would we do that? Well, it's a land claim, right? And what's the most important thing on a land claim? The date. We were here first. And so why were we the first ones to figure that out? There's also a grail code on the runestone. The first four ruins within the inscription that are uh, singled out with punch marks and short strokes, and they're different than the dating code. The dating code did, did not happen the same way. It's done differently. The marks identifying the dating code are different than the grail code, but the first four rooms singled out in sequence are G, R, a L. 
in medieval old Swedish, that spells Grail, as in that Grail. Who wrote the Grail legends? The Cistercians. So why do you think they would hide this, Scott? Why do you think that they would hide this particular information? Because it was designed to be read by those with the eyes to see. It was designed, these things were all embedded within it as code for authenticity. So now you discovered a grail code hidden in the Kensington runestone. Yeah, I published that in my first book. Wow, congratulations, Scott. That is a an amazing discovery. Just thinking of the foresight that these people had to go extra lengths to let everyone know that they were there first. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, you can carve an inscription, but to really um, seal the deal as it were, I mean, it's no different than putting, you know, um, all the different protections and, and watermarks that they put on our currency, right, to protect it from being uh, counterfeited. Same process, basically. And they embedded these codes and this symbolism and these words and the dates and all this stuff in it to those who understood how to do it, how to read it. And if you're not initiated and you don't know the codes or read it, you're not going to understand it. Exactly why the scholars have struggled. They don't get it because they haven't been initiated. Because they don't know what they're looking at. They don't know how to read it. They had no idea what they were. It meant nothing to them. That is absolutely incredible. It's nuts, isn't it? That is amazing, especially when you think about uh, science and geology and the thoroughness that goes into the work and research that's done. Right. Well, um, you know, I guess, first of all, you have to define what the grail is. Well, that's what, you know, I mean, I think the, I think the grail, um, you know, is, is what, what it, what it is to certain people. I think the argument that it's a bloodline is a good one. Um, I think that it, it certainly could be. Some people suggest that it's an ideology, it's this whole, um, veneration of the sacred feminine uh, and respecting you know all life and and living yeah and living in and living in balance maybe that's seeking the grail maybe maybe the grail was America a place where all people could live in freedom you know and and uh, and learn and grow I mean our, our our founding fathers were all about education that's what the word light means Seeking life means learning, knowledge, growing. And so, you know, the grail could be a lot of things. Freedom. More, what's more important, what's more valued than, than individual freedom. That, that's why they started this whole thing. The grail is, uh, I don't know if there is a, a, a right answer to that question. <laughs> Rather, uh, yeah, I mean, um, it's, hard, it's, it's hard to say. Um, but all I know is, um, you know, the grail to me means any and all of those things. And what the Templars were trying to do, and uh, they accomplished that goal. And it's like you've heard many times, it's up to us to try to keep it. Right now, I think we're struggling in that regard, but I have faith in, in the system, I have faith in the people. And I, I think we're going to figure this thing out and hopefully 
go forward in, in, a, in a better direction. I certainly agree, Scott. Um, I've definitely been trying times here in 2020, but I believe that information like this and getting people back to the root of where these symbols and ideas have come from will bring us closer together. Look, I mean, you know, it's been a struggle the last four years. It's been about divisiveness. It's been about, um, it's been about me instead of us. And, we just need, we just, it's time to do something different. I understand the experiment, um, but it's safe, it, 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 it didn't work, so let's try something different. Yeah, it's time to time to move forward, time to put it behind us, time to come together and start opening our minds and, you know, taking in new information and, and collectively coming together as, as a whole. I agree, man. Um, I'm all for it. Yeah, man. Well, in any event, what was it like? I know it's kind of off topic, but what was it like being on the show? They sure have put us. Uh, I mean, they, they. I mean, we have been all over, and it, it, it's been a hell of a lot of fun. My gosh, we just—it's been great. But the other thing is, is there's just so much in this country to uh, to see and to investigate. I mean, there are mysteries everywhere. It's just. I mean, every state has got something cool to look into. And, you know, even though we've done almost 50 episodes, 49 episodes, there's still all kinds of things to be investigated. I'm not sure if we'll get an opportunity to do that uh, again or not. But even if I don't have the show, I'm going to do it anyway, man. I've been on, I go on road trips all the time and I love it. Just, uh, I just get up and go. Yeah, man, do your thing. I think it's uh, super inspiring, you know, especially when we get to watch you go and investigate um, many sites around the world, around the country, and everything else. And being that there are so many cool things in all of these states, man, we here in upstate New York have um, probably the closest one to us is um, America Stonehenge out in New Hampshire. Yeah, America Stonehenge is just and I highly recommend it. It was such a cool place, and Dennis Stone and his family are amazing people. You know, the natives in that area, they say, we didn't build it. So, uh, if they didn't, certainly not colonial, for God's sake. Oh, for and sure. if they didn't build it, then who did? Somebody that came from across the pond an awfully long time ago. Yeah, and going back to um, Venus and everything else, man, uh, the astrolog astronomical alignments up there are pretty uh pretty intense huh oh of course i mean that's how that's how navigation happens it's all you know in ancient times i mean this whole discussion of they couldn't have got across the ocean and all this bs i mean it's just it's laughable of course they did the evidence is everywhere and their abilities the technology to get here has been known for a long time. I mean, come on. Right, and it's it's certainly naive to think that these people didn't have the technology or the means to make these things happen. Exactly. I mean, give me a break, <laughs> guys. 
Well, it's like we talked about. See, there was a particular narrative that was um, that was shut down, and the people had control of the institution to set that narrative and and put it in place. And now it's up to us to uh, fix it. You know, I mean, let's just look. I don't have any particular agenda. I just want to get it right. That's all. Right, and I think that you know, uh, here in 2020, that you know, we the people are entitled to the the real information these days. You know, it's not, it's it's time to start opening up and and letting everybody know, and then educating everyone else as we go. Absolutely, man. That's uh, that's the way it should be. I wish more people embraced that ideology, but um, I'm hopeful. I'm not I'm not giving up on everybody. I just I just. I think it's up to you know more people if they took the time to learn and understood some of these things they they'd come to realize that it applies to all of us. Um, well, in my opinion, Scott, you're doing an excellent job, man, because these ideas really do need to be bought, brought to the forefront for people to be exposed to them and then to, to open their mind and maybe possibly have a different thought process. You are exploring so many different things. I'm not sure where you find the time, bro. Well, I think part of the reason I, I'm able to handle so many areas is I was born AD, triple HD, so <laughs> I need three things going on at once for me to be happy, so. Yeah, I think it's great, Scott, because your energy and your passion are just unparalleled. And there's so many people that uh, look to you for your experiences and and the information that you uncover. And uh, we, we couldn't be more grateful that you came on to the show. Appreciate it. And uh, all I can do is, you know, what I, what I do, and I'm going to keep doing it. And, you know, I, I do appreciate the opportunity to come on here and um, talk a little bit about this and hopefully uh, people you know, learn something, and, you know, if, if people are interested in learning more about some of the research I've done, I invite them to go to my website, which is uh, www.hookedx.com, spelled H-O-O-K-E-D-X.com, uh, or my blog site at realscottwalter.com, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and if you hit me up with a question, I'll hit you back. Yeah, that is super cool, Scott, and uh, we definitely appreciate your time, man. It's been super fun and super intriguing, and I'm sure the listeners have loved it. Uh, we've only touched a couple topics, so maybe we can get you back on again in the near future. Sure. Scott, thank you so much for your time, man. We we appreciate it so much, and for everybody listening, make sure you stop by Scott's website at www.hookedx.com. Scott, what are the names of your books real quick for our listeners? The latest book I did is called The Cryptic Code of the Templars in America, Origins of the Hooked X Symbol. But uh, I've written some other books, probably the one that would be most germane to what we talked about uh, today was, would be The Kensington Runestone, Compelling New Evidence. And, um, you know, you can find these books on, on Amazon, but if you want a signed copy, I sign all books that are bought off the the Hooked X website. So if you're looking for a gift for somebody, you might want to check that out if you want to get a signed book. I'm going to get over there and grab a gift for myself and uh, and obtain one of those signed copies. Yep, we'll make it happen. I definitely will, Scott, and uh, I look forward to getting you on again. And uh, for everybody listening, make sure you check out Scott's website, check out Scott's books. Make sure you get over to the Facebook page at Nonsensical Knowledge for updates and information. Make sure you click that subscribe button. 
Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you so much for being on, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Well, thank you for having me, and we'll do it again soon. Thanks so much, Scott. You have a great night. All right. Thanks again. Here at the Nonsensical Knowledge Podcast, we take pride in supporting our small businesses and each and every one of these businesses we personally know and stand by. So if you happen to be in the Waterford area and need to get your hair cut, stop by the Stray Razor Society located at 99 Broad Street in Waterford, New York. My man Joe Kenny will hook you up. Contact Joe at 518-321-6607 to schedule an appointment. Do you have a property that needs to be cleaned out or junk removed? How about black mold or asbestos in your house? Call Clean Environmental Solutions to have it properly taken care of. My brother Irv Ackerman is there for you. Contact Clean Environmental Solutions at 518-417-2308 or visit their website at www.cleanenvironmental.solutions. Who doesn't love baked goods like cupcakes, cakes, cheesecakes, brownies? I mean, you name it. Sugar Mama Bakes makes it happen. Whether you want a custom cake, or some of the old school favorite classics, they deliver on whatever you want. Check out their Facebook page at Sugar Mama Bakes and send them a direct message to place an order now. Are your gutters jammed up with leaves? Is your house super dirty? Check out my homie Steven at First Choice General Contracting. From pressure washing, gutter cleaning, and most other areas of construction, my guys at First Choice are there to get your job done right. Call Steven at 518-860-9371 to schedule an estimate. Looking for handmade crafts? custom decorations or custom apparel check out scissor sisters crafts on facebook and shoot these lovely ladies a direct message to place an order for birthday parties graduation parties they're there for whatever you need if you happen to be in the historic downtown district of troy new york and need your ears trimmed or maybe a shoe shine go see my guy johnny at flippers barbershop located at 97 congress street in troy new york or schedule an appointment by calling 518-663-3734 Last but not least, make sure you stop over to the Nonsensical Knowledge YouTube page and click that like button and subscribe. Also, be sure to follow our Facebook page at Nonsensical Knowledge for more information, news, and contents. Once again, thank you so much for your continued support and see you on the next episode of the Nonsensical Knowledge Podcast.